Climate change is likely to have a big impact on the sea that surrounds us and there is evidence that it already does. On Agenda Tonight, I talk to DEFA member Michelle Haywood, MHK, about blue carbon and the potential for marine plants to take more significant amounts of carbon out of the atmosphere. I also use the opportunity to quiz Southern MHK's Haywood and Moorhouse over the lack of progress on a new Castle Russian high school and the recent debacle over the Southern swimming pool. talking to Michelle Haywood, MHK for Russian, and uh, we're talking about blue carbon. Why Why are you the spokesperson for well, blue carbon? Um, I really uh, happily for me, actually, after uh, Claire Barber agreed to be Minister at DEFA, she invited me to come and join the department, and I've ended up with a delegation for the Environment Directorate, which is where the, the blue carbon and the marine research uh, sits. So it comes under my bag politically, but as you know from my past and, and the scu- extensive scuba diving and marine science that I've done anyway, it's right up my street, to be fair. <laughs> so for, for most people, they, they, they may have, have, have got their heads around the idea that uh, planting trees is a good thing because it captures carbon. Yeah. Um, but uh, blue carbon, it, it's to do with stuff growing in the sea. How does that help? It is. Um, I think you know we, we've started to we started out with trees on land, didn't we? And we said, oh, plant trees and let's capture carbon. But we've realised now that grasslands capture a lot of carbon, and soil captures a lot of carbon, and peat captures lots of carbon as well. So our understanding on land is still uh, building. Once you get to the sea, because most people look out and all you see is the surface of the sea and you don't see what's underneath there, then it becomes an even more complicated picture. So we know that there's a variety of marine um, uh, animals and and algae and stuff that that live down there that will be taking carbon out of the water and will be building it into their biological molecules. Um, Some of that stuff will end up in the sediment, so the carbon will be locked away in the sediment in the sea. Uh, What we don't understand yet is what the scale of that is. Um, and how much of that is actually there. So so the study that's be, been announced, is, is that primarily to assess what's actually happening at the moment or is it to uh, look into opportunities for, for expanding the, I don't know, kelp forest or, or whatever it might be or, or a mix of both perhaps? Yeah. Um, the initial study is to scope out what we've got there. So we know there are some very important habitats that do sequester an awful lot of carbon so things like eelgrass for example is really good at sequestering carbon we don't fully understand the extent of those eelgrass beds around the Isle of Man yet so one of the the pieces of work is to sort of capture that um, and and how far that extends we don't understand how much carbon sits in our sediment layers so although we've got data from the work that was done with Bangor University where they take cameras down to various locations and we know what the seabed substrate looks like around most of the island we don't understand when we actually look in detail at that how much carbon is, is in those layers and so this preliminary year is to basically try and scope out what's there and try and get some sort of baseline data so that we can look then the, the work going forward from that for the next couple of years will be looking at how do we manage that, how do we keep that carbon there that's there already because we don't need to release any more carbon out into the atmosphere um, and then what steps can we take to to enhance that carbon if it's possible. And to a certain extent we, we're, we're on to a, a winner with this in as much as um, there have been um, quite a significant number of areas that have been closed to dredge fisheries 
And um, I mean, unfortunately, I don't dive. I mean, maybe I ought to at some point, but um, so I don't know what sort of an impact that has had. But I imagine uh, by not having the the dredge fishery, there's been quite a lot of recovery of plant life uh, on those areas. The Isle of Man's really, we're ahead of the game, really, in terms of protecting areas of seabed. You know, we protect a huge proportion of our seabed. And within marine nature reserves, you can allow certain activities. So you could allow the low impact activities. There's crab and lobster potting goes on and things like that. So that's that's kind of one aspect where we're already ahead of the game with in terms of management. And we've got a very strong fisheries team as well that are, are constantly looking at, at what's happening in terms of the gear that's being used. And, and it's possible that we might suggest that there needs to be a switch in, in fishing gear to reduce how much carbon gets released from environments. But you're right. I and mean, we are in terms of our marine management, we've probably got one of the best structures in place to actually um, take the best advantage of the carbon that we can capture in the sea. Another of the the really um, positive, uh, certainly for, uh, in, in terms of human activity, the, one of the positives that comes from from this, uh, and there are several, are that um, by protecting certain certain are- areas and allowing the the plant life uh, to, to grow. Uh, you, you you find that um, certainly fish can use this uh, as kind of nursery grounds. There's this opportunity. Um, the, the the scallops actually uh, land on the on the on the weed, and and uh, the, the the spat can then develop. So 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 there's there's quite a lot of of potential positives in terms of increasing the uh, amount of of fish and shellfish in in, in the seas if if we protect areas. There is, and I think one of the the massive advantages for the Isle of Man is that we've got Port Erin closed area, which was the original closing area of seabed off in order to improve surrounding fisheries. Um, But what we know now is that that area hasn't been dredged or touched, and so what's happened there, and I appreciate you're not a diver, I'm not going to offer to take you, it's a bit too deep to be fair. (laughs) But what you see on the seabed there is you see a huge amount of of life that lives on the sea so things that don't have an, uh, a land-based equivalent hydroids and, and sea pens and um, the starfish and everything like that there are lots and lots of life across there It'd be really interesting to look at the sediment from that area that hasn't been touched at all for over 30 years now and to compare that with what's been going on outside because that'll give you an idea of if you have dredged the seabed how much of that carbon was released we know that that dredging can cause problems on the seabed the, the bycatch and everything is, is is obvious the stuff that comes on deck and there's obviously the damage that happens to the seabed as well but as i say we're in a really good position because we are protecting so much of our seabed already and we have excluded uh, those fisheries uh, that were causing big damage in land when you dive somewhere like port air enclosed area it, it's it's a slightly trippy dive actually because the scallops down there we're used to seeing scallops at, you know sort of the size of your hand but actually they're about half as big again they are huge because some of them will be 20 years old i don't know how long scallops live for we have a competition every time we have to do survey stuff down there to try and find the biggest scallops that we can because i'm sure if they're anywhere they're going to be in that area so it starts sort of almost changing your perception about what you're seeing it's a bit Alice in Wonderland type moment that things don't look the the same size as you're expecting but it's just a signal of how much you could be locking away in the marine environment and and certainly one of my 
regrets as fishery minister. I didn't, I didn't have too many, but when I was fishery minister... regrets, I have uh, a few. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, uh, but, but one of the regrets was that we never got a, a dived uh, scallop fishery. And I know that was something that you were quite interested in yourself. I mean, is that something that potentially uh, could happen? I mean, certainly if the, uh, the results of this survey come back and say, actually, there's lots of opportunity and potential for locking up carbon uh, by way of blue carbon... Uh, potentially more areas could then be closed, which which then allows the potential for more um, fisheries like dived uh, scallop fisheries. I, I think there will almost certainly be a move in the future away from really damaging uh, fisheries uh, mechanisms and, and, and equipment. And so I think you'll see a shift in the gear and I think you'll see a shift in procedures as well. I sincerely believe still to this day that you know dive court scallops are probably the lowest impact that you can have on an environment because not only are you only taking the scallops that you're going to harvest, but you're allow, you, you can also survey for what's down there while you're doing it so you're managing catch levels. And there, there's clear scope there for a, a leased area of seabed that allows a company to come in and, and manage that catch sensibly so that it's sustainable. The, the I mean, the, the, the dredge scallop fishermen, uh, certainly there, there was one uh, famous occasion, I remember one of the Scottish uh, uh, fellows uh, suggesting that actually the, the big the big trawlers were the best because they 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 spend the least amount of time damaging the steep seabed, <laughs> but obviously they damage more. Um, but then he also used this analogy that in effect it's a bit like farmers ploughing fields and um, I suppose uh, over the, the, the last 10, 15 years, what we have done in terms of managing scallop fisheries is reduce significantly the area which is dredged and significantly improve the gear to, to reduce the, 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 the damage. So, um, I mean, is that analogy to, to ploughing fields um, a, a fair one or, or, or is that just a, a, a fisherman's tale? Well, it's, it's one I hear often quoted. I, I don't think it's a fair one because actually what, and you, and you mentioned you know, the scallop spat earlier, what, what we know is that the small scallop spat needs something to settle onto. So often that's onto um, a substrate called merle, which is like a sort of pink, almost like a little baby coral cold water coral type structure um, and that's great for for the scallops about to settle but it's absolutely just it's slow growing and completely destroyed if you if you dredge across it um so actually i think it probably goes the other way that you know too much dredging doesn't allow for the scallops about and then doesn't allow for that population to be replaced so there has to be a balance between the areas that you protect and there was some great particle tracking data that showed where the, the scallop spats settle out of the water. So we know which ones those important areas are. Um, and, and protecting those so that you can then get the overspill catch is a sign of a, a well-managed fishery. But I, yeah, I don't think I'm going to go with a ploughed field because I'm preparing the <laughs> seabed. <laughs> and, 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 and I mean, there are the, the other opportunity that uh, exists. And, and again, this, this possibly takes a bit of... Uh, uh, an imagination leap on the part of the listener is it can actually help in terms of uh, coastal defences. Uh, you know, uh, certainly there's evidence that kelp forests, for example, uh, if there are sufficient, you know, if there's sufficient amount of kelp, uh, places, for example, such as Bay Nacarica in, in, in your patch, um, the the, the you know, there's a significant problem with the road there and, and uh, frequent overtopping. Kelp forests can actually significantly reduce the energy of of storms as they're coming in 
and uh, actually reduce the need for substantial uh, coastal defences. Yeah, it's absolutely true. The, I, mean, I think if, if you think of the like Big Bay, and Douglas Bay has the same sort of like rocky substrate with with sand interspersed as as Bay Nacarica does, and so what you'll see there is is kelp will naturally grow. And uh, of course, the, the flip side is you get people complaining about seaweed on the beach when it has been stormy, but it does absorb an awful lot of energy from there. And it's completely different if you head round to Port Erin side. Port Erin Bay is mostly sandy across it, and so kelp can't really get hold in there. So there isn't there's some seaweed washes up on Port Erin Beach but it's not the same scale because it's just the wrong wrong seabed substrate so I think in terms of could we increase uh, what's down there you, you'd have to artificially engineer the seabed in order to, to increase more you know, rocky substrate for the, the, the kelp to hold onto what we can do is not do damaging activities so I suspect um, Baina Carica, given that it's been closed now for five, five or six years, I think, aren't we, um, to, to dredging, has probably recovered some more of that, that weed than you would have otherwise seen because it, it's been allowed a chance to grow. And I think some of the management going forward will be more about what we don't do than what we can do to enhance stuff. So going back to the uh, original uh, issue then, uh, the, 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 the scientists are, are, are starting work fairly shortly and uh, when are we expecting a uh, result from from all of this? The preliminary results will be within the first year. That's where all the survey stuff. So we should know the areas. We should know uh, estimates about what carbon is locked away in in different types of of habitats. So that will give us a, a good baseline to start for. And then after that, it's working through how do you manage into the future and, and and even things that are happening in the marine environment. We started talking about marine spatial planning the other day, but things like whether we're going to have another interconnector for power coming into the island, which way that routes might be uh, affected by what we find because if it's going to route through a really, really carbon-rich environment, there's probably the chance to say, well, actually... Let's you know. Let's swerve around that, and 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 let's do something less damaging. So it will be important to have that information, so that we can make you know sensible decisions about the what activities we're doing in the sea. And it is really important to, to be able to make informed decisions. So this is going to significantly enhance our, our understanding of what our seabed has on it. And of course, we've got to remember that is it something like eighty-seven percent of our territory is is seabed. It's a huge amount of territory, isn't it? Um, I think the thing with scientists, and and you'll know this from having been in the department, is that they'll ask one question, think of a way of answering that, and then there's, in the meantime, they'll have thought of three more questions, and so there will always be more science and and more answers they want to go and look for, and that and that's great. It's it's a in that respect, it's a brilliant department to work in because you have all these inquiring people who are really passionate about their particular area of expertise. Um, so I, that's going to be, you know, we've been building on the science that started in your time. You can see it now evolving through. And so things like the um, the inshore crab and potting boats are starting to get trackers on them soon so we'll actually be able to evaluate where those boats are and where that activity is concentrated which is data we just haven't known up until now and and, and lobster and crab potting is fairly low impact on the environment you're only taking catch that's the right size you know it, it's all that's that's a, a, a good news story but knowing where that activity concentrated will allow us to manage those stocks a little better as well so i think you know, we're, we're gradually chipping away at trying to understand how it all fits together and 
are there any regrets uh, when, when you sat in a, a dull uh, Tinwald or House of Keys sitting? Do you ever think, gosh, I wish I was un- under the sea looking at this, these fantastic habitats? Well, do you know, not till now, because the election was in September and there hasn't been much diving going on, although <laughs> this weekend's looking fantastic. That's going to get harder as we go through summer. I, I'm not going to lie. I, I, I'm, I'm trying still. I've, I've been in twice, I think, this year so far, just because the weather's been been rubbish. But you know, we do get some time off. So, and, and I'm going to try and dress it up as you know. Maybe I'll do a bit of the science while I'm down there, just like kind of you know, nudge it as a work do rather than actually taking time off. You're listening to MHK for Russian Michelle Hayward. So, what's she been doing for the South? As a Southern MHK, I mean, there are two big issues that have hit the headlines in, I suppose, the course of the last two or three months. One is that Castle Russian seems to have have, have dropped out of the pink book in terms of clear commitments. And uh, the other one, of course, is the Southern Swimming Pool. Now, I know you were a member of the pool board for a a short time. so uh, you you won't be you won't have been that surprised at uh, at the problems that the pool is facing. No, I think that the the problems with the pool funding are they're systematic problems that have, have occurred over years, and the um, subvention was frozen uh, over ten years ago. It then didn't pick up again once we got through the the VAT crisis at the time. Um, it was never revisited, and it sat there uh, as a declining proportion of the operating costs. Um, the pool board have tried a number of things to try and restructure um, to to try and change uh, staff over onto modern contracts to try and change working hours and things I, I think there's you know there's some sort of legacy stuff of when government moved away from Whitley council contracts and they moved everyone lock stock and barrel local authorities and local authority boards were left out of that that move across um, and so you end up with some very expensive uh, staff contracts to maintain. And I'm not saying that staff don't deserve the, the rights that are written in their contracts, but it does cost a, an awful lot of money for some of those positions. So that's been hampering the pool. The The lack of uh, subvention increase has been hampering them. And it's an ageing pool structure. Um, and so it does cost more. It, it's not well insulated. You obviously have to heat the water. That's heated by gas. That was all a really bad news story. It, it was before. But the infrastructure is just getting tired and old. You know, fans, the extractor fans only work for so long. Uh, it's a fairly harsh environment for them in the damp there. So the pool is an expensive pool relative to, say, the, the newer pools up in Ramsey. Um, and I think in my time on the board and then running forward, all you're doing is firefighting. The board's been living hand to mouth for a while. And COVID really really knocked everything for six because the board with with all the best conscience in the world decided that staff would still need to be paid you recognize that staff have even if they were on contracts that said well we could stop paying them but they still had mortgages and they still had bills to pay and and so the staff did and you know did get their pay during that time and the board did the morally right thing but when you've got reduced income that's that's added to the the financial problems down there it does appear that the pool at least the financial future of the pool is secure till uh, for, for the next 12 months yeah. so that's a positive oh yeah, that's definitely a positive it was what the pool board had been working on a survival plan and they'd asked for a, a year's support basically to see if they could turn things around um uh, restructure how the staffing works and and try and get things back on an even keel but i think that the overall problem is that most of that um support from the subvention 
was was stopped and if you go back to the initial pool uh, creation the the government central government was going to pick up 75% of the the running cost of the pool and that's declined to about 50 52% i think so that decline basically has undermined their ability to do anything it, and you know what it's like with maintenance if you don't keep up with it it comes back to bite you later on and it's more expensive to solve the problem when something fails and so that's what that pool is facing. During the election campaign, uh, the former education minister was, was pretty adamant that the, the, the plans for Castle Russian were al- almost ready to go and uh, things were going to happen. And then, uh, you know, uh, three or four months after the election, budget comes out. Castle Russian, which had been a clear commitment, uh, no, no longer there as a clear commitment in the budget. Have you been asleep on the job? What's happened? Because the, you know, the, the school was almost ready to be built. I think actually we, um, we came in knowing that, that that's the commitments that have been made and that the school was ready. You know, the, the playing fields have already been started. The the underground heating uh, is all in there. The ground source heating is all there, ready to go. The ground settling, you know, it'll be playable in a year's time. So that was the, the first phase. And then we all expected the next phase was that the current playing fields would, would start having building works on them. Um I think we were all stunned that it's it's just disappeared off the off the agenda as it seems as as far as uh, treasury and and DSE are, are concerned. Um, the the building itself is in is in very poor condition, but the the layout of the school is is poor. It doesn't help the staff in in the running and the management of school. Even moving around the corridors can be difficult between lessons, and and it's just not a safe environment for our children to be in. So we are all very very deeply concerned that it seems to just being kicked down the road now and it, i mean presumably a lot of talking has been going on behind the scenes since the uh, the budget are uh, commitments now being sought that this is going to get uh, pushed back back into the uh, the budget for next year we are repeatedly asking the questions i know i'm i'm sure you've listened to the the the, the keys recently I, the group known as the Beautiful South uh, <laughs> seem to dominate the question paper and, and Castle Russian is one that comes up on a regular basis. Um, I think the nice thing is that there's, a, there's a, a really good working relationship between all the Southern MHKs and some of our MLCs that are based down there as well. And so with matters like the pool and the school, we've all been talking to each other and we're all working together to try and take those, those um, projects forward. Questions are an important way of raising mm-hmm. matters. But a lot of the to, to actually achieve things, you you've got to be talking to people. You've got to be having the meetings and, uh, um, I suppose, issuing the political threats. Yes. Um, so presumably, all that is happening. <laughs> That's too. happening. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think we've all of us uh, met with the Department of Education over the last uh, few weeks. Uh, we've all had discussions uh, about what needs to happen and and why we're so um, concerned that there seems to be very little will from the department to push on with this. MHK for questions, Jason Moorehouse has queried a lot, but what meaningful action has he been taking? It's fair to say that a number of, of your questions focus on constituency-related matters, uh, and yet um, Castle Russian, for the first time, I think, it no longer appears in the pink book um, as a as a clear commitment. It's in the in the the, the, the long grass section of the pink book in the budget. Uh, Minister uh, Edge appears to be 
far from uh, convinced that we need a pool in the south of the island. Yeah. Uh, are, are, are your questions actually being effective? Or uh, oh, indeed, definitely. you know, are the are the four southern MHKs, uh, have, have you been asleep on the job? Oh, certainly not. And I'd go beyond four. We've actually got six members of Timwold from the south of the island. And there's a block that's quite significant because we always talk about combing being a block and all six of us are outside combing, so we're actually quite active. In terms of my questions, I've been very productive in terms of the number of questions asked, but also in terms of following things up. So if you actually look at these questions asked on the school, there has been a movement to kind of ensure that there are dates being referred to, that there's actually items being referred to that you can then go back to and say, on such and such a date we refer to this, what difference does it make? So a recent question was looking at the um, work that's being done in the new fields. And I went back and said, this work's being done in terms of a consequence and a positive add-on. What is that doing to the next stage of the development? So I'm always looking at how you can actually get more mileage out of each question. So, yeah, that's important. But also, I would say that a significant number of my questions do have local links, but virtually all of them do have that national significance. So, you know, if you look at something like the Peggy, we had a brilliant... um, presentation by Max National Heritage recently in Tim Walden. It was really significant that at the start of that process, the minister said, thank you, Mr. Morehouse, for keeping going on this and raising this awareness. And it's good to see that, you know, kind of nibbling away at the edges sometimes helps things move to fruition. And mm-hmm. yeah, you don't get instant access to change the backbencher, but you can help get movement. Ha- have you yeah. have you been offered a job yet? Because I know you, you didn't take on any role um, when the, the uh, initial round of, of, of uh, sweeties were, were handed out by Ch- uh, Chief Minister Cannon. Um, yeah. a, 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 any movements there no, yet? It was, it was not Thursday that was, yeah, because I went to see the Chief Minister at um, 9.30 in the morning and I spoke to him again at 4 o'clock and during the course of the day the house went from being quite a tip to absolutely fantastic. I clean every bit of the house it was like lockdown one again but in terms of taking a position I had things offered but I did want to remain on the clinic policy review committee and the things I had offered would have meant I would have become a member of department but lost out on my scrutinizing role on the clinic policy review committee has the Southern MHK's focus on questions meant they've irritated government, which appears to have dropped Southern priorities? Or do the questions achieve the results without the hard work of behind-the-scenes politics? Blue carbon has great potential and it seems that there's nothing to lose from investing in it. Reduced atmospheric carbon, more habitat for fish to breed and juveniles to grow, and even the potential to reduce the impact of damage caused by storms. Please get in touch with Phil Gorn at manxradio.com and let me know your thoughts and views on the programme. But for now... I'm Phil Gorn, Guramayu. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>